Morning. Morning. You good? All right, well, I am excited. Do I say that all the ways? I am excited to share God's word with you. I am. Like, I mean, there are there are a handful of things that I enjoy in life. And um, preaching and fishing are like constantly battling for spot number one. Just kidding. Um, uh, there is nothing that I enjoy more than preaching God's word. And then number two, I'll just leave that out there. Uh, don't want anybody to feel left off the list um, in terms of things to do. Let's pray. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and we praise you this morning um, for every opportunity to gather uh, in your name and, Lord God, to know your presence. Lord God, to gather with the believers and have you, Lord God, to, to put your, your endorsement and your enablement on the Sunday morning gathering, to separate it out from everything else that we do in our lives, Lord God, because we obeyed the words of Scripture and we did not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And Lord God, we heeded the words of Scripture and also knowing that if we obey you, that um, your son Jesus says very clearly that you'll come and make your abode with us. And that when the body comes together, that there is something distinctive happening that is different from any other time, Lord God, that we might have in our lives. And so, Lord God, we, we thank you for the special blessing that is enjoyed Lord God, uh, around this time. We also thank you, Lord God, for the special blessing that we enjoy when it comes to opening your word and taking an earnest look in its sacred mirror and what you would have us to see about ourselves and what you would have us to know about you. We ask you now, Lord God, for your help. Um, even the best of us, Heavenly Father, um, because this is your word, this is not mere literature, we need your help. We need the empowerment of your spirit, and we need the perspective that only you can provide through the great and glorious lens of the gospel. And so we just ask, oh God, that you would supply that clarity, move me completely out of the way, and glorify yourself, Lord God, in the edification of your people. This we ask in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen and amen. So as you've already heard, we are wrapping up our series on the essentials or the doctrine of the Bible in particular. And uh, so we're wrapping up with sufficiency. And as we walk through all the others that we've covered so far, um, we share with you inspiration, also canonicity, uh, preservation, and now sufficiency. And so as we, um, as we work through these, all of these, I, I think the prerequisite for each of our hearts to fully appreciate these messages has been the prerequisite of faith. The Bible informs us. I think even when we kicked the series off, I mentioned it, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Those that uh, come to him must first believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so every one of these messages comes with a prerequisite of faith at a minimum in God himself. Uh, I'm thankful this morning that we have an all-sufficient God, an all-sufficient God that in him is everything that we need, not just some of it, not just a portion of it, not just most of it, but everything that we need. And um, it also just uh, really captures my heart in preparation to understand that the all-sufficient God has also given us an all-sufficient word. So he wants to be or is everything that we need. And then he declares that as I have invaded time and space, that I have come into history and recontextualized it or given, its, given it its, its original context, 
as he has allowed his word to be preserved for us, to be captured faithfully, borne along by men, it demands faith that we see the word of God as sufficient. And so we're going to talk more about that, uh, that, fa- that demand of faith that it places on our lives. But first, let's, uh, let's talk about a couple other things. Um, uh, we had a, a large group of guys over at the house um, uh, yesterday, and uh, don't know if anybody went through all the drawers in the island in our kitchen, but uh, there's a tradition or a habit or discipline that we have in our household, and that is anytime we buy a product, uh, it could be as simple as a bookshelf that requires minimal assembly and all the tools and screws are in the bag, or it could be something as complex as uh, a most recent piece of technology. We always keep the owner's manuals and any other documentation that talks about its warranty. And uh, so this humongous drawer, or well, this small drawer, but tons of paper in there, and they're all just kind of nicely, neatly in there. But anytime anything ever goes wrong with one of those products, we want to be able to go in that drawer and reference that to see exactly what we need to do. Um, take, for instance, our refrigerator. If our refrigerator were to go on the fritz or to do something atypical of what we expect or even whatever, we would open that drawer, look up the, open the manual for the, what, what's the brand? What is that? You don't know? You remember GE Signature or something like that? Or is it LG? Whatever. Anyway, so you go in there and uh, you open up the manual and, and you look in there. And if you've ever studied the owner's manuals of any of your products, and let's just stick with the refrigerator um, idea, um, it is quite interesting what's there. Um, from cover to cover, you read that, and uh, there's, uh, you know, there's typically a diagram that shows that product fully exploded and broken out if it was disassembled. It's like, oh, I don't need to do that, but it's in there. Uh, there are uh, pages that discuss its ideal function and operation, how to use each one of its buttons. Uh, there's a page in there uh, that discusses uh, uh, troubleshooting, like what to do in the event that you experience this. And then there's a page in there with like a 1-800 number. Like if all of that is not making sense, here's somebody that you can call. And then of course there is somewhat of a service promise in there, right? You can also find the details and particulars of the warranty that goes with that particular item. It's the owner's manual, that's its job. Now what's interesting about the owner's manual and its product warranty descriptions uh, for our refrigerator is that if my TV breaks, I can't go to that manual because it has a very specific context on what that manual wants to talk about. If my toaster breaks, I can't go to that manual. As a matter of fact, maybe even if a refrigerator of another brand breaks, I shouldn't go to that manual because the context of the owner's manual that was given to me for that particular product is very specific to that particular product. When we talk about sufficiency today, when we talk about the sufficiency of scripture, I want to both narrow and then expand the conversation. Because I believe that one of the great abuses that we do of the Bible unintentionally is that we expect it to be a math book, a science book, a biology book. We expect it to be a textbook on a variety of other topics that it does indeed bump up against or touch, but we need to understand what the scriptures say that they are about. The Bible clearly informs us by its own witness and self-testimony that it is to inform us of everything that we need in order to know God as Savior and to do life in Him successfully. Just once again, the sufficiency of scripture is best captured in this conviction that we should hold together. The Bible informs us of everything that we need in order to know him as savior and to do life in him successfully. 
This is the context, the aim, and the direction of the Bible. And as the Bible takes on that kind of thematic trajectory or takes on that purpose, yes, there are a whole host of other things that, 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 the, that the Bible bumps up against or that it addresses along that route. And we can trust what its words are in that regard. We do not throw them out. We listen to them clearly. We heed them wholly. That, that, but the sufficiency of Scripture needs to be understood first and foremost that God wants to be fully informed as to who he is as Savior and how we might live life in him successfully. Let me give you more of a uh, textbook definition of sufficiency. It is this. The scriptures contain all the words of God that he intended for his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. This is the textbook definition given by uh, Wayne Grudem of the sufficiency of scripture. What it tells us is quite clearly that we can trust, and we have been able to trust through every stage of history, that wherever God was in his progressive revelation of himself and his plan to save, that we can trust what the Bible made available then and what it makes available now. So realizing that Moses is general would have only had access to what you know as the Pentateuch. They wouldn't have had the full text that we know it today. But what they had at that time was sufficient. And as God continued to maximize or, or continue to progress that, that revelation which reached its apex or its climax in the person of Christ, all the scripture that was given to us is sufficient for what God wanted us to be informed about. And I want us to be very strict and very clear and very confident in that understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture because I believe that there are oftentimes where our hearts may be shaken, our hearts may be shaken in the confidence that the Scriptures are sufficient because they don't comprehensively address subjects that are not in line with redemption. I also believe that there are times where we may be tempted because we don't fully understand what the scriptures are communicating to drift into other texts that do speak to our redemption. So the sufficiency of scripture is not just an academic accent uh, uh, on the conversation of our Christianity. It is a crucial body of doctrine that really shapes the way we worship. I sit back oftentimes and I look at the songs that we sing and my heart is not only worshiping and reveling in the Lord, but it's also actually going through kind of the compendium of passages of scripture. Like, hmm, how do we know that to be true? Where did we get that from? Why do we sing that? It sounds melodious and it sounds, it sounds pretty, but is that an actual dep depiction of how God has revealed himself. And that is how the sufficiency of scripture should work itself out in our lives. No insult to the great and beautiful, awesome, gifted minds that the Lord has released into the world, and they have books that litter the shelves of every bookstore in America, and, and we really enjoy them and enjoy what God has said through them and, and, and to them. And what we should do is read those books at the same, but at the same time realize that sufficiency, the sufficiency of scripture, call our hearts back to what he has said about those things. And so, um, this morning, as we work through this whole conversation of the, or this lecture pre message on the sufficiency of Scripture, um, I'm going to use actually 2 Peter chapter 1 really as my roadmap for the entire message. So 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 3, we've read it together, but we're going to have it on the screen, and we're really going to press into this. Uh, it says here, I want to read it again. It says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory glory, and excellence. One of the first questions that we need to ask ourselves is how can a finite book inform us, uh, give us a full view of such an infinite God? 
This is a fair question. How can, how can the finite pages of scripture give us a full view of the infinite God? Well, this is the Bible's own uh, testimony, but let's take this, let's take this. So as we, as we look at first, uh, excuse me, as we look at 2 Peter uh, 1 through 3, there are several takeaways, five in particular, that are going to shape the entirety of our message and how we answer both this question and a subsequent question that I also think is critical. Okay, so how can these finite pages give us a full view of an infinite God? How is it possible? So let's kind of gaze uh, intently here at 2 Peter 1 and 3. And there's uh, one observation that I want you to take away. It says, first and foremost, his divine power. His divine power has done this. It is his divine power that has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, right? So number one, the sufficiency of scripture is an expression of God's own power. Number one, okay? Are those visible to you? Can you see those clear? Yeah, yeah, you can. Awesome. All right, so number one, this is the first takeaway from this very passage. The sufficiency of scripture, again, is not just a, a, a secular a thing that we have surmised, but God in his own testimony of his own word says that by his power, he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by, um, to his uh, glory and excellence. So the first conclusion is that this is a work of God's power. It is an expression of God's power, sufficiency is, okay? Number two, Notice that it says, by his power, he has granted us. He has granted, he has gifted, he has given us. So number two, it is an expression of his grace. The sufficiency of scripture is an expression of God's power, number one, and it is an expression of his grace, number two. Number three, look what else what it does. It says, by his divine power, he has granted us all things parentheses, that pertain to life and godliness. So remember we talked about the owner's manual for my refrigerator? That's not the one I reference for my microwave. That's not where I go if I see something on my favorite television show that annoys me. I go to the owner's manual when I'm looking at the product of my refrigerator. That's what it's designed to speak to, okay? So number three, I also understand that the sufficiency of scripture by virtue of this passage is an expression of God's plan. I should expect to see an outline of God's plan. What do you want to have happen in my life? Because you say that by your power, God, you have granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Well, how else did he do that? Through the knowledge of his son. You see this in the passage, right? And so if it's through the knowledge of his son, the fourth takeaway from that particular verse is this. It is not only an expression of his power and an expression of his grace or an expression of his plan, but it is also an expression of his person. God wants us to know very particular and specific things about him that he has disclosed by his power, by his grace, and according to his plan in his word. There is an expression of his person that is available in the scriptures. Therefore, we refer to him as being sufficient. But there is more there. It also says, I'll read the passage again at the, for, at the sake of being redundant, so that, if that increases our retention, let's get it. His divine power has granted us, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us, he called us to his own glory and excellence. Therefore, on the other side of God's power, purpose, and plan, there is also, out of his person, there are certain purposes that he wants to fulfill. Also, the sufficiency of scripture is born out of an expression of God's purposes for both humanity and all of creation, Okay? So these five uh, premises will shape the entirety of what we talk about for the rest of our time together. 
And if, um, you know, we get around number three and we've been here for an hour and a half, just kind of raise the white flag and say no mas or, or whatever. And we'll, uh, we'll just keep on preaching. <laughs> All right. So when we uncover this first one and it says that um, uh, the sufficiency of Scripture is understood as an expression of God's own power, how do we arrive at that conclusion? Well, obviously, using Scripture to clarify and speak to Scripture, the Bible informs us in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, this about God's Word. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and discerning, it is discerning of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him whom we must give account. If you look at the actions that are actually performed by the word of God and the adjectives, it is understood to be first and foremost living. It is living. The Bible calls us to, uh, to account to understand that God's word is living. It is more than literature. It takes on, it has, it, it should take on in our lives a, 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 not just a look and a feel, but a reality that is different from anything else that we read. It belongs on the shelves of our heart on a shelf that is completely different and distinct from anything else that we take into our lives. The, the word of God says that it is powerful. The words are powerful. Right? Now, you may be struggling for, with this real quick. You may be saying, well, well, how do we know that his words are powerful? This is what they testify. And remember, it is impossible to please God without faith. This whole conversation started with a premise that we actually believe that God exists and that he does indeed speak. And that if he speaks, his words, just like your words, have very specific intent. He's not speaking at random. He's not running out of vocabulary. He's not limited in the cultures and the topics that he can address. And so if God is indeed an almighty God and he is indeed powerful, then why not his word be powerful, especially if we've entrusted him with the salvation of our souls? So then, the word of God is powerful and it is active and it is living. It is piercing, it is discerning, and it is searching. This is more than mere literature. But then the Bible goes on to tell us in Psalm, in the Old Testament, the saints there also believe this, that in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 12, you may or may not have this one on your screen, I'll read it for you nice and slow. It says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord, this is another uh, a synonym for his word, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord uh, is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter are they than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his, his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. So the, words on, so the word of God and its own powerful self-testimony lets us know that it is more than literature and it is also more than just mere enlightenment. The takeaway should be this, quite simply, when it comes to the sufficiency of Scripture, is that it is more than enough on any topic that the Scriptures dare to touch and address, more than enough on its target, when it's on target and on its way to the discussion of redemption. Now, you might be saying, well, Pastor Rob, when we talk about creation, the Bible is kind of bumping up against, like, where the dinosaurs at, but it doesn't address that, because on target, it's not talking about that. It doesn't mean that the Bible in its silence is somehow denying those things, but that's not where it's headed. You understand that the owner's manual of my refrigerator, in the process of telling me how to fix it or what to do about it or how it was assembled, it's bumping up against electrical engineering. But that's not the point of the manual. 
It doesn't mean that my, my, my refrigerator manual is somehow denying that engineers exist and that they designed it. It's not denying that there are, uh, that, that, that mechanical engineering exists or all the other bodies of knowledge necessary to, 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 to complement or come into the assembly of a refrigerator. That's just not the end goal. That's not the game. That's not the tone. That's not the target message of the owner's manual of my refrigerator. Now, it doesn't mean that those topics are not knowable, that they're not searchable. But that's not the point of the Bible. That's not the point of the manual. Is this making sense? So then, the Bible is more than enough on the topic that it chooses to touch. And that topic is the topic of our redemption. And then also, on the way to that target, here's it is, concerning life and godliness. I think you get the general point there. The second thing that we said is that the Bible not only is an expression of God's power, but it is also an expression of his grace. Take into consideration what's said here in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. I love this passage. I mean, it really rattles my cage when it comes to my time of prayer and my seeking of God. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, let me ask you a question. Does that mean that because the Lord has given us Jesus, that I now can expect him to give me a car? No, because we understand that the context is that he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness and that are along that trajectory of what we need to know him fully and to obey him perfectly. Does this make sense? But the beauty of this passage is indeed this. It is a beautiful expression of God's grace because this is something that he has granted to his people. And it calls us into looking at the gospel as this incredible provision of God that he has given us his highest, his best, and his most in his son. He has given us himself in his son, clothed in flesh. This is what he has given us. How much more will he not also grant us the things that we need? Now follow this conversation very carefully. As an expression of God's grace, we need to note, well, how can, or here, let, me, let me just say it this way. We should fully expect, without pride, without hubris, without risk of judgment, or, or being rebuked by God, we should fully expect that if God would give us the gospel, he would give us his son, desire that we come to him and know him, and expect us to, 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 to bow before him, expect us to, to laud him, expect us to follow him. Not only would he give us the gospel, but he would also give us everything we need to walk it out. We can fully and we should expect that the same God who gave us the gospel, we should expect him to also give us everything we need to walk out the gospel. Does that make sense? So the scriptures are sufficient in providing us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness. And so then, if a person is, if, if you're walking out your relationship before the Lord and you feel like that you're lacking something, the question is not to question the inventory of God, but to question the inventory of my heart. Lord, have I trusted you? Because if you've given me your son, how else would you not give us all things that we need to follow him and to be made more like him? And so... The sufficiency of scripture leans upon, and it is an expression of God's power. It is also an expression of God's grace. 
Look at this, beautifully so. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses uh, 5, 15 through 17. And how from a childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, may be thoroughly furnished for every good work. The grace of God, as he told the apostle Paul when he leaned into him, earnestly asking that God would take something out of his life, God's reply was, my grace is sufficient for you. So my God is an all-sufficient God. His grace is an all-sufficient grace. So even when the Lord doesn't answer my prayer, I need to, I need to know that whatever he's given is sufficient. Well, guess what? He has given his word. His word is sufficient for us. It is sufficient. So, here's a second question that kind of creeps up. Let's say, Pastor Rob, we do agree with you that um, the sufficiency of Scripture is, is an accurate uh, takeaway from or an expression of God's power and also an expression of His grace. How can we, how can we expect such an ancient book to adequately address our contemporary issues? Is that a fair question? How can we expect such what appears to be a static and ancient book, what appears to be an ancient book, to adequately address our contemporary issues? How can you tell me that all I need is my Bible and I don't need to go down to Lifeway with a, with a buggy and just, you know, like on those shows where you have to run around and get groceries and what's that, like on a, on a timer? I can't remember that, Carrie, you watch that. <laughs> but how can, how can this ancient book do so? Um, how many people, um, you've been in Atlanta for more than 30 minutes? Good. No doubt during the course of your work week, even if you're visiting in the course of your visit, no doubt, no doubt, you have turned a corner or driven somewhere and you've seen hard hats, reflective vests, barrels, equipment, excavators, I mean, just like stuff that you don't even know the name of it. I mean, how many people have been driving down the highway and you see this thing that looks like, like uh, I think it's called the road tech, but it's like, like Godzilla with an umbrella. It's like this humongous, massive thing on the side of the road, and it's got a little umbrella on the top. Like, what does that even do? And guess what? You never see it moving. And when you pass by a construction site, you never see the guys moving. You never see the equipment. Every once in a while, you see a piece of equipment, but it's like pushing this humongous mound of dirt. It's like backing up down the hill, and you go away for three or four months. You come back and visit our city, or you turn that corner five, six months from there. There is a school or a subdivision or some kind of new gas station or a multi-use uh, living you know, theater type of situation. It's crazy what, what happens here. But do you know what governs all of that activity, what governs every single aspect of it that you and I don't see? A blueprint. There's a blueprint. I mean, regardless of how random, disconnected, undescribable, indistinct, unconnected, any of that activity at a construction site looks like, somewhere there is a guy on the hood of a Ford F-150 or maybe 250 with a, with, a, with a scroll like this, and it's a blueprint. And it's governing all that activity. Now, the blueprint is more than sufficient to drive all that activity. You understand? And so the individual workers, some of them may not know the blueprint, but they know their role within the blueprint. 
They know their assignment within the blueprint. Do you understand? And so for us, how does an ancient book, something that seems to be so fixed in time, effectively speak to our contemporary issues? The same way that the blueprint continues to speak to this ongoing engagement where everybody understands their assignment and then the finished product results in something beautiful that really escapes our imagination because we didn't see that coming. But guess what? The architect always saw it coming. And his perspective is not our perspective. And so the beautiful thing about the Bible is that no, it is not an encyclopedia of every single solitary thing that could happen in the course of a human life. But it is a blueprint, it is a schematic driven and drawn by a master architect who knows exactly what the finished product is supposed to look like even if the individual workers don't. The blueprint is sufficient. And so is our Bible. So even within our own secular inner workings, we already know what it means to place faith in something that seems to be fixed in time, but has glorious future implications that fully anticipates a variety of different circumstances and situations. The Bible says it this way in this expression of God's plan. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may know or may, that we may do all the words of this law. Hear that very carefully. God, as a master architect, understands that there are certain things that his people may not know. There are certain things that are a secret to him. But the fact that, again, the Bible does not tell us everything that can be known about God, it tells us everything that we need to know about God. And not only that we need to know, but that we should keep and hold on to forever in order to follow and live out life before him successfully. How do we grab hold of this practically? The Bible makes it clear that, again, uh, that we are essentially on a need-to-know basis. Now, that might sound insulting that we're on a need-to-know basis, but do you realize that every single one of us lives life on a need-to-know basis? Do you realize that when I open, again, if we just want to overwork that refrigerator manual illustration, that when I open that refrigerator manual, that I am not on conference calls with the CE down at uh, uh, LG, that he's not inviting me into every conversation about what they're doing with the company? You understand that, that, that I'm on a need-to-know basis and where I am as a product, as an end user? Now, do I have access? Sure, I, I, I guess I can. If I want to call the number and work my way up through LinkedIn or something, I could find the guy. But, but what I'm getting to is we all live our lives on a need-to-know basis, and that's not an insult to our intellect. And so what God is saying is, hey, listen, if I were to fully disclose all of who I am, you can't handle it. Jesus said that no man can see God and live, but it is the Son himself who has come here and declared him to us. So, so it's not like God is handcuffing us or blindfolding us or holding anything back from us. So when you think about the finitude of the Bible, right, and the finitude is expressed in the fact that it's, it's, it's 66 books, yeah, it's just 66 books, but God says, that's enough for what you need to know about what I'm doing now and what I'm going to do next and what I'll do in your near future. He is the grand architect of this beautiful work of Scripture. The Bible goes further to tell us about this kind of us living on a need-to-know basis, which is not an insult to our intellect, but 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and following, listen to this. But as it is written, what the eye, well, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man has imagined, 
what God has prepared for those who love him. But the things of God, God has revealed to us through his spirit. Now what this first principle lets us know is that there are things of God that, have not entered to our, that we have not seen, we have not heard, and they have not been imagined by us. But even amongst those unseeable and knowable things, God has revealed them by his spirit. So what we also know we need is that the, the, the sufficiency of scripture also declares that we need the Holy Spirit to reveal things to us. Therefore, it's not just literature. I, again, if I just want to digest uh, uh, my favorite magazine, I don't need an outside powerful source informing me or informing my heart of what's happening there. But the Bible clearly informs me that when I'm reading the blueprint of God's beautiful plan and his description of himself and what he wants to do in, according to redemption, that I also need the Holy Spirit in my life to help illuminate the scriptures. This puts the Bible in a completely different class of its own, sufficient in and of itself, but also pushing us back to our constant need for God himself in order to read it well and to understand it fully. Therefore, this is how the Bible, seemingly ancient, can speak to our contemporary issues because it invites us into an ongoing relationship with the infinite God and also to know his spirit. The same passage goes on to say the things that God has revealed to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for who knows the per person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God that we may understand the things freely given to us by God. And we may impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And verse 14 ends like this. It says, the natural man does not accept these things or of the Spirit of God, uh, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is not judged by, by anyone for he who understands, excuse me, here, here's, here's, this is super critical, lean into this, I know I read a lot. For who has understood the mind of the Lord that they would instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. The Bible acknowledges and declares that no one has known God's mind so perfectly that it could give him instruction, but God has given us the mind of Christ. So remember our principal passage? By his power, he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to glory and virtue. So it is in expanding our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and by pressing into him, when I feel myself hitting a roadblock on the Bible's sufficiency, that I need to pull back and say, Lord, what do you want to show me about you? Am I treating your Bible like a topical index or am I going to it like the great autobiography of your person that it is and as the disclosure of your plan that it is? When we find ourselves reaching roadblocks in understanding God's word, we must ask the question, am I using it, appealing it, and approaching it properly? Even, even, you may not be undermining the Bible, we might even be idolizing the Bible. And both are equally Wrong approaches. To idolize the Bible would also to make it a book of magic. To believe that you can just plug and play into any one of its promises and God is going to swoop in like some kind of witch granting a spell just because you got it right on the pages. That's not what the sufficiency of Scripture is about. The sufficiency of Scripture quite clearly is that God has given us everything that we need to know about him and how to do life with him successfully.
and walk before him obediently. So, here's what we can trust, is that while our cultural backdrop is changing, our critical need is not. You could be the greatest student of history of all time, and you will not find a single solitary culture that is not deeply faced with its own frailty, its own fallenness, its own deficiency, and its deep, desperate need for a savior. No matter how far you go, back in history or time, our, our cultural backdrop may, may be changing, but our critical need is not. Our practices and traditions may be changing, but objective principles and truth do not. So therefore, the Bible remains perpetually relevant, even as an ancient document, and still able to anticipate all that may happen in our lives because it is principle-based. Therefore, the principles and the patterns that are revealed in Scripture speak to everything that goes on in the believer's life. The principles do. Everything that happens in our lives can be backed up to a biblical principle, if not a direct picture or pattern. The Bible is sufficient. So, the Bible not only is an expression of God's power, an expression of God's grace, an expression of God's plan and what it is that he wants to do in our lives, but it is also a beautiful expression of God's person. First John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say this about it. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was with the Father, which was made manifest to us. This is what we've declared to you. Here it is, the Bible, the Bible, beautifully, God says, he has, he has, he has, he has invited us into it to literally explore the nature of the creator of heaven and earth. Now, now, let me ask you this. When it comes to, again, questioning whether or not the Bible can truly speak to all the issues of our life in principle, even if not in picture and practice, regardless of how antique we think it may be. Follow me very carefully. We, we agree with the Bible that the creator, he's the creator of heaven and earth. There is nothing that happens in our lives outside of that theater of his glory. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that all things are made uh, for him and by him. And it is by his word that all things, and in him that all things consist and all things hold together. So there's no, no single scenario of life that the Bible cannot speak to because its author is the maker of heaven and earth. And so certainly if there's something that is a direct impact on our redemption or our life in him, he principally has given us something to speak to it. His word is sufficient as a disclosure of his person. It also invites us not only to explore the great creator of heaven and earth, but also to explain the ways of our redeemer. He wants these things to be known about him. Now, here's why I want to challenge you just a bit. Any information that we find outside the scripture, any, here we go. Get ready to throw me out or throw something. Did you bring stuff in your, in your purses and pockets to throw? What did you say? Grapes? Eggs. Oh, as <laughs> long as they're boiled. Um, anything that has become a part of our experience before we incorporate that into our, our theology needs to, compare it with the exp needs to be compared with the exposition of Scripture. The exposition of Scripture must reign supreme regardless of how vivid the experience is. 
regardless of how vivid the experience, regardless of vivid how anybody else experienced it. If, if I could give it to you this way, if the Bible is God's autobiography, then we must trust the autobiography above the documentary, regardless of how well prepared it might be about an outside agency. Uh, we must trust the autobiography above the beautiful and glowing Facebook posts that may, speak, may seem to speak to a beautiful and, authentic and, and awesome and authentic experience that one might have in God, may have in God. I'm not even discounting the value of experience other than it must be subjugated to the exposition of Scripture. Does that make sense? There may be things that be deeply, deeply believed, deeply held, but we need to understand that when it comes to life and godliness, if it does not square with the exposition of scripture, that that idea, that conviction has to be subjugated. If I believe in the sufficiency of scripture. There may be things we may not be able to fully discover whether or not they are true or how exactly they fit within the grand scheme of our theology. It doesn't mean that they're absolutely wrong and false, but here's what the believer is held to account and obligated to believe. Obligated is a heavy word, but the thing that, the, that heaven and earth, the, um, the maker of heaven and earth places an, owner on our, an onus on our hearts to believe are those things that are clearly expounded in scripture. And any experience I have that veers from that, I should be weary of. Or I should at least put it on pause. Lord, I don't know what to do with this experience because it seems to say something about you that doesn't match what I know to be true in the Bible. Now, you might be saying, well, Pastor Rod, I, I can't deny myself. I mean, I know what I know. I see what I see. Guess what? In order to get saved, you had to deny yourself. You, you, you looked in the mirror and recognized that that wasn't enough. You looked in the mirror and recognized that how you felt and who you were wasn't enough. You recognized that you had to have God. Therefore, and, and what you trusted in God when you came to your senses and denied yourself and followed after Christ in order to be confer, con, converted to him and to be conformed to his image, what you did in that moment was said, Lord, regardless of how deeply and beautifully and wonderfully and convincingly I feel about this, it doesn't align with you. It takes me away from you. Therefore, if that's the formula, if you will, that, 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 that cemented your faith in Christ for the gospel, why wouldn't it not be the same formula as we continue to walk it out? I get it. I'm not denying that we don't have deep and riveting experiences that seem to radically alter the course of our lives, but they have to be brought back to the exposition of Scripture. And this is our, not only our understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture, but also its authority. So our exposition then validates our experience and not vice versa. Also, I want to be clear that our experiences don't validate what the Bible teaches. The Bible validates itself. We may have an experience that confirms what we see in the Bible, but the Bible isn't getting its validity from me or from you or from us collectively. And so we've reached number five. We talked first about the sufficiency of Scripture and understanding it as an outworking of an expression of God's power, being able to see it also as an expression of God's grace, being able to see it as an expression of God's plan, being able to see it as an expression of God's own person as he makes this autobiographical disclosure. But we also, number five, see it as this, as an expression of God's purposes. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Bible says this, beginning with verse 1, Now Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord um, God, our fathers, is giving you, that you may not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord God which I command you. 
The Lord in that passage not only points us to the fact that sufficiency calls us to see the Bible as all that we need to both know him and live life successfully and obediently before him, but that we must also respect the content that he gave us, not to diminish any of it, regardless of agreement with it, and not to add to it, regardless of how awesome a conclusion we think we've come across. Does that make sense? So the sufficiency of scripture calls us to account, not to diminish or to add to words, God's word. He said to Joshua in chapter one, verses seven and eight, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. You do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper in whatever you, wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success." Mrs. Man, that sounds exciting to me. But with scripture interpreting scripture, be sure that both good success and all these other promises are defined by the scriptures themselves. Because God, by his power, has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to glory and virtue. And so the purposes of God is that he would quite simply be glorified in our lives as the sole source of saving truth and not a mere consultant. You know what the role of a consultant is, right? It's somebody that we hire to come alongside. And then we have options as whether or not, you know what, this doesn't subscribe. This isn't exactly what I signed up for. I, I, don't, I choose not to, to, to take that on. God isn't interested, nor will he subjugate himself to being a consultant in our lives merely speaking to what we ask him to speak to. But the sufficiency of scripture, the sufficiency of scripture says, declares that we come into to, to the Lord knowing him as our source. That he is a source and that, that, that he's not offering us this, this, this take it or leave it advice, but these are indeed his words and they are indeed sufficient. I wanna close with this passage, 2 Timothy chapter three, verses 15 through 17. You've seen it several times throughout the course of this conversation. But here's something that I really wanna press on one more time. It says, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The sufficiency of scripture is this, making us wise unto salvation and making us ready for every good work. Just to make it real simple, I mean, we covered a lot of ground, but the Bible desires, God desires through his word to make sure that we have everything that we need to know to make us wise unto salvation and to make us ready and equipped for every good work. I think the, the, the call to accountability for us, if, if I could, is to take a look at the bookshelf of your life. Take a look at your life's bookshelf. The, 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 the sacred reads and the things that you hold on to dearly and ask yourself, if you found out the Bible differed, would you defer to the Bible? Even if it's stung? I'm just asking you, take inventory of your heart's bookshelf and the things that you hold in high regard 
And if the Bible is above those books, there is an opportunity for repentance. And then you say, well, Pastor Rod, that's easy for you to say. Well, it may not be easy for me to say. Well, it is easy, but here's where I'm going with you or with us as a family. If you look, if you hear that and you say, I, I, I can't roll like that. I've read the Bible and it, it, it doesn't speak to my issues. It doesn't address my issues. I ask you this. Are you really taking full advantage of what the Bible says? Because here's, here's, here's what the Bible also calls us to do. Here, here's how the Lord equips us with everything that we need for both life and godliness. It tells us not to deny the relationships that we have in the local body. There may be issues that the Lord wants to have answered in your life that know the exact solution may not be found letter for letter in the words of the text, but they may be found in the institution that the Lord has endorsed by his text, which says, go to the church, go to your brothers and sisters, go call for the elders, go get counsel, go on your knees, humble yourself, turn from your wicked ways, and I'll hear your land, I'll, I'll hear from heaven, I'll come down. And you may be looking for the specific formula for the Bible to speak to. And the Bible says, I'm not giving you a formula. I'm calling you into me so that we don't treat the book like a, the Bible like a magic book yeah. or just a book of advice or a book of formulas or our favorite magazine. There'll be many times that the sufficiency of Scripture will point you to plant yourself more deeply in the body of his beloved. That may be the solution you're looking for to rub shoulders with, create community, and, and to invest in their lives and not do Christianity as a long ranger. I, I, I'm really pressing on this because I feel like us as Western Christians, we really have kind of a Walmart style of, of walking with the Lord in many cases. We come in, don't demand a lot of relationship, just go straight to what I need, and then I go home and I'm done for the day. And we realize that, man, I got a little bit of a deficit. The deficit must be on God's part or it must be on the Bible's part. No, the deficit might be on the way that we're responding to his word because it sufficiently addresses all that we need. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning thanking you and praising you for how you beautifully, wonderfully disclose your purposes in your word. We thank you, Lord God, for having sent your son, but also in allowing that beautiful, Lord God, message of salvation to be captured in the text. We thank you, Lord God Almighty, that you, as an expression of your power, are able to not only cause your words to be captured, collected, preserved, but also, Lord God, continue to perpetually speak into our lives. We ask that you would search our hearts and if there's any corner of us that struggles with that reality, that we would really see where our struggle is. Our struggle isn't with the Apostle Paul or Peter or James or Luke, that our struggle is really, Lord God, with you. That something about us doesn't believe that you can preserve your word. Help us, Lord God, to see where we really stand on all these things, that we might be better equipped believers before you, but above all things, that we might be more robust worshipers and people who live lives of obedience before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.